Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the upcoming. Doctors, lawyers, entrepreneurs, it doesn't matter. We're here to talk about all the best and the brightest as they make their way to their dream careers. I'm your host, Jonathan Carr. Join me as we have a spectacular conversation with an equally spectacular person. You ready? Let's go. Hello, world, and welcome to The Upcoming, the perfect place to catch the best and brightest on their way to the top. Joining me now for The Upcoming's 39th episode, straight out of Brownsville, Texas. He has a bachelor's from University of Texas, Pan American, and a master's from USC. He's a screenwriter with eight screenplays, one of which has already been advanced as a quarter finalist in the Screencraft Sci-Fi and Fantasy Screenwriting Competition. He's also been a content writer for Screen Rant and Comic Book Resources, so he's just doing amazing things, working for big names and showing us just how talented he really is, and I am so excited to have him with me today. So, ladies and gentlemen, Rudy Salas. How's it going, Rudy? Hey, Jonathan. Thank you so much for the kind words. It's, it's going pretty well. I'm actually excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited too, Rudy. So, uh, I know you've been listening to my show, so I think you know what I'm about to ask. In your, your own words, please indulge us. Who and what exactly are you? Oh, well, in a nutshell, I'm a storyteller, and then if you want to dissect it some more, I'm pretty much a screenwriter, and I usually delve into different genres, and I basically like to tell stories with a lot of the influences that I've had in my life and the experiences that I've had in my life too. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. So now let's get on to where you started, Rudy. So first, just let us know, like what got you into writing in the first place? Oh man. Oh, I got to wind the clock back to, uh, this is going to be a deep cut, but it's uh sixth grade, sixth grade, Mrs. Punet's class in, Mrs. Peanut's English class in 2002, if I remember correctly. So Mrs. Peanut kind of opened the gates to me of wanting to be a writer because we had an assignment that that we had to write a one-page Halloween scary story. And what ended up happening with that was that she would say, she said, okay, we're going to post them up on the wall. You know, like just to have to show you guys that, like, oh, you know, we appreciate your work and everything. And uh, <laughs> what ended up happening was that I was like, oh, like, I want to write. Like, I wrote one. I was like, I kind of want to write another one. I have another idea. I kept going. And by the time I knew it, I had 10, 10 stories that I had already written. And I went up to her and I told her, like, okay, like, Miss Junad, like, I have 10 of these. Which one do I pick? And she just looks and then she's like, okay, like, don't worry about it. And she just takes the sheets of paper away from me. And then she, she basically goes and she's like, okay, everybody, Rudy's going to have his own side of the wall. So one whole wall was just dedicated to my stories because I couldn't help myself from not, from not writing. So she, she kind of planted the seed to everything kind of blossoming from then on. And I kept going with it for the past yeah, 20 years or so. Amazing. Truly. It's, so your teacher just sort of just elevates you to thinking, wow, I really can do uh, do this feel. I really can just be a good writer just by displaying all um, your ideas right there. Yeah, and it was it – was, <laughs> I mean, I look back on it now, and it's like, oh, it's kind of 
it's like, oh, that's a cute story. But then I'm like, yeah, no, like that's kind of where the foundation was set because I, I like, I know like what I was writing then, it was like, oh, like kind of like rip offs of the Friday the 13th movies or rip offs of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies and, and the thing and sci-fi movies and Robocop and things like that. But then I tell myself like, well, I, that's what everyone essentially does to begin with as a writer because you draw from your influences and ultimately you become a sum of your influences. You just basically soak in through your eyes, ring out through your heart, and then you funnel it out through your own voice. And that's kind of how, like, I, I guess that's just how uh, stories unravel because you basically take out, you know, that, that, that toy chest in your mind and then you take out all these genres, take out these characters that you've seen and you're trying to interconnect them and then basically turn them into your own and make it your own. Yeah, so true, so true. So I'm just curious, who were some of your biggest influences growing up, whether in the industry or otherwise, you know, excluding um, your teacher? Oh, like, oh, man, when it came to the industries, there's so many, so many writers and artists and filmmakers. But I usually always go I usually always use a musical analogy because like I love music too. And like there's this, there was this movement called the new wave of British heavy metal. And uh, I kind of compare two of my favorite writers, Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore to the new wave of British heavy metal where Neil Gaiman is kind of like Iron Maiden to me. And Alan Moore is kind of like Motorhead to me. And they influence me and I'm trying to basically be, I guess for, you know, for like, this is a stretch, but it's like me trying to be Metallica where it's like, I'm influenced by them, but I'm still trying to be me because that's all I can be is me. <laughs> and then another musical quote, I remember, I think, I think Snoop Dogg said it once. He was like, yeah, like, cause who else can be you, but you. And I think, cause it was an interview with him at 50 cent and they were talking about like, yeah, who else can be you, but you. And then 50 Cent replied with like, yeah, because when you let someone be themselves, they bring something unique to the table. And like those words always reverberated to me. And that's why I kind of was like, yeah, like you get influenced, but then you're still got to be you. You can't just blatantly rip someone off because it's like that old saying that they, uh, is it, um, oh yeah. When you steal from one person, it's called plagiarism. When you steal from a lot of people, it's called research. And that's what some people kind of see that as. And I mean, because if you look at other filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino, they take a lot of influences from a lot of genres, make it their own, and then it's poignant and it makes sense and it's artistic. But at the same time, he knows where he's coming from. Yeah, that is so true. Tarantino, you know, Gaiman, just all these guys. I love that saying, uh, if one person has played yeah. for many, that's uh, research. Research. Yeah. Research. Because you are, as a writer, you are taking like a lot of inspirations and a lot of ideas and a lot of words people have, and you're um, putting them together into your own, your own unique piece. So let me ask you, what was something, what was a story you wrote that required the, the most amount of like research and uh, inspiration? I think it's probably the most recent one. Well, the second most recent feature that I wrote was 
of Wolf and Man. And that one, because my a lot of my stories, they always come from emotional sparks. Like I'm more moved to write something when I'm moved something. I'm moved by something emotionally. And a Wolf and Man, the spark was pretty much my love for animal, my love and respect for animals and nature. And my theme was animal conservation. And I was like, okay, well, I have my theme. And then my genre was horror. And I was like, okay, like, I love horror movies. And the thing with me is that I love the Universal Monster movies from the 1930s. And I love that era of horror movies. So I basically took my theme, what was moving me was animal conservation. I was like, okay, well, like the Wolfman, the Fly, and Island of Lost Souls. So it was like, these have parts that I, like, I took my favorite parts, follow them through my voice, and then just kind of ended up writing this 110-page script out of it. And, I, and my research was basically going back and looking at what was poignant about those movies and the the aesthetics of those movies. And I was like, okay, like, like Island of Lost Souls is about science experiments, science gone wrong, trying to play God. And I was like, okay, like, well, I can kind of, I see where the message was in that. The Wolfman was someone losing complete control of who they are and becoming a monster. It's like, okay. And then the fly was about science run amok. And I was like, okay, like I could take all these parts. And then what is it that, that I'm trying to say is like, well, like instead of, instead of like a, like abusing animals and experimenting on them, this mad scientist is kind of trying to, to, to weld animals and people together in order to have this one kind of like the Island of Dr. Moreau, this type of society where everything is fused together and everything can live in harmony. That's pretty much impossible. That's why he's mad. So who's going to go up against him is his star pupil who ends up becoming a werewolf because he's fused with a wolf. So that's where that story unravels and that's where it kind of leads into. And then it keeps going and going and going with that. So as the, the more stories you wrote, what were some things you learned along the way? Some of those important lessons uh, you, or tips you learned along the way? Oh man. Structure. Structure is very important and always having an end goal as to what you're trying to say, because two of the things that I'm constantly asking myself whenever I'm writing is what am I trying to say and how am I trying to say it? Because <laughs> there's that, that, that nice little thing called context where it's like, if you take something out of context, it might fall apart from a story where it might not make any sense. And then if you put everything into context, you see the big picture and then you start to understand what it's, what you're trying, what the, person's trying to convey with their story or their film. So that's one of the things I've always trying to tell myself is like, okay, like what am I trying to say with this scene? Where am I going to take this next? And how is like, what am I trying to say with this entire story? And then I feel like every, every person should ask themselves those two questions all the time. It's like even cinematographers where they're asking themselves like, you know, what am I trying to say with this camera angle? What am I trying to say with this lighting setup? And even with screenwriters, it's like, what am I trying to say with this line? What am I trying to say with this character and how are they trying to convey it? And that's, those are two of the things that I've been learning a lot. And I've learned a lot since then, because, you know, like with, with one dimensional characters, it's like, Oh yeah, the, like the bad guy's the bad guy because he's bad. Okay. 
it's like you kind of got to you know dive a little bit deeper into that it's like oh well the bad guy is a bad guy because you know he's upset like okay he's upset all right that's he's not just bad because he's bad well it's like you go deeper and deeper it's like okay the bad guy's the bad guy because he's upset about xyz it's like okay now we're getting somewhere so we kind of got to keep going and it's like well, what are you trying to say with what he's trying to do with his evil plot or what is he trying to do with what he's trying like with the portions of his life that brought him to that point to think that way. And that's kind of how it always goes as well. I see. Yeah. Structure definitely it plays a huge part in storytelling because you want everything to just add up and just make sense. And just people want people to know like how the story is being told. So they don't, you know, get lost. But you know, there's, there are, mm-hmm directors who are screenwriters who take things in a sort of like unconventional way and will like try to put in one um, plot point and then just another and just sort of like take it out of order in a way. Just try to like do something mm-hmm. different. What are your thoughts on uh, writers who try to go those directions try to be more unpredictable with their stories? Um, you know, like it's like that saying is that a to to break the rules you need to know how to abide by the rules so it i can kind of see where they're coming from because when something becomes conventional it becomes very it becomes very formulaic and where yeah you need to shake things up you need to kind of figure out a new way to to accomplish things and i i'm all for that just as long as it makes sense at the end of the day which and that's why that's why i always feel like yeah like these are like the, there's different ways to get to the party and there's different routes and there's even different avenues to take it. It's like, Oh, you want to take the train to the party. Okay, cool. It's like, do you want to, or do you want to, do you want to get in a car and drive to the party? Do you want to take a plane to the party? And it's always these type of different avenues and different routes to get there. So it's, it, it is, it is good to not just, you know, go from point A to point B to point C. And it's sometimes, you know, like, let's go to point, from point A to like point AA and it's like, let's go from point A to point AAB and then just keep going and breaking it down and then come back and forth if you need to as well. Just to, but you have to, everything needs to be there for a reason. That's the, that's the, the pivotal point of everything like that, because if it's not there for a reason, it can kind of start to fall apart. Yeah, it is true. Feel break rose here. I have no idea how to buy it. It's definitely, definitely um, good lessons to know there for all you um, aspiring uh, writers. But let's think here. What was a, let me ask you this. What was a movie you saw that's completely, like, threw you off or, like, surprised you and left you, like, wondering, like, how did they do that? Oddly enough, I think it's always the ones that have like are more live in ambiguity and ambiguity. Sorry for the pronunciation, <laughs> because I'll go back and I'll rewatch like The Shining 
and that it, it it takes on different layers from the different perspectives that you look at it. And I remember, like, I was like, oh, like when I was like when I was younger, as I was a kid, I was like, oh yeah, the the hotel just haunted, and then just drove Jack Nicholson crazy. It just drove Jack Torrance crazy. But then we start looking back on it now. It's like, oh, was he always crazy because of his the alcoholism and the illness? And then it always lives in ambiguity because whichever perspective you take on it that's the one that you're going to marry to. And then you can always kind of dive into different perspectives. Like, Oh yeah, no, the place was haunted and it's a horror story. That's, that's plain cut and dry. Or you can dive into the whole, the personal aspect of it is like of his alcoholism too. And I like those type of movies because they always stand the test of time. Because if you go back, you see it from a different perspective and they, it almost feels like it, it still catches you and it's, and they never get old. And, one of them is The Shining, and then the other one is uh, Total Recall, the original 1991 with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Because the whole premise of that is the ambiguity is, is, that, is he living out his ego trip, or is he really awake and living in this real world now? And they never tell you that. It, they leave it completely ambiguous, and it's up to the audience to decide that. And that's why, like, those are the three movies that get me, because it's... It's very uh, formalist versus historicist because with historicist like critics, they'll go up to the filmmaker or the writer and ask them, okay, well, well, like, what is it? Like, is it this? Like, is this what you were trying to say? And then they'll say, yeah, this is what I was trying to say with that. This is what I meant. Okay, fine. Formalists will not go to the filmmaker or the artist or the writer because they'll be like, well, no, I want to form my own opinion of it and just keep it like that. And that's kind of like how those are the type of movies that I really find intriguing. I feel like stand the test of time. And those are the ones that kind of keep twisting and twisting me every time that I go and rewatch them because you always end up finding something new about them. Interesting. Okay. (laughs) So let's get on to you as um, back to you as a writer. So you've, made amazing strides in your uh, screenwriting uh, journey and your story um, Starcross I believe was able to make it as a quarter finalist which is definitely a big achievement so as you were starting out this uh, script uh, what were some questions you had about it that you were trying to answer just ways where you were just like how do I put this story together and then just work towards making it happen Oh man, with that one, <laughs> oh man, with that one, it was, it was initially tough because I was, because the whole premise of that is, it's like a, it's a breakup, makeup, and breakup story in space. So that's kind of where that premise came from, where I was like, okay, like, these two people were ripped apart by circumstances and this is kind of their only route is this the only route for them to get to at least understand each other is to see why things went south is through this story and through this adventure that they're taking on because with star trust i basically took elements of total recall demolition man uh escape from new york like all these kind of sci-fi post-apocalyptic sci-fi movies put them into this story about these two, these two bounty hunters 
that are after a gem on the forbidden vicious planet of Earth that's been destroyed and is radioactive. And they're off trying to find this gem. And while they're while they're trying to find the the, the gem for their respective for their respective bosses, that's when they rekindle their relationship that they had years prior. And that's when they that like that's the real that like to me that's the real conflict is that the emotional conflict because I have in that story I have like these like mutant bears that have Venus flytrap mouths and allig and alligator tails and then like crocodiles with that have frog legs like all these mutated beasts and they're fighting them I have like a bull mixed with a lion and all that and they're fighting all these like savage creatures but at the end of the day their worst enemies are each other because they have unfinished business. Mm. And that's the real core of the entire story is that instead of like, yeah, you're like the aesthetics are like, Oh yeah, space. And like, Oh, all these creatures and like all fighting and all these battles and everything. But the real battle is the battle between people and their emotions. And that's kind of where that's the anchor to the entire story is that. I like that irony right there. And I love um, <laughs> with all these freaky monster hybrid things, they're fighting each other, and the most dangerous enemy is really just each other and their own emotions. That's yeah, yeah. that's powerful. Yeah. I, I love that you uh, had like all yeah. these like freaky um, like uh, like mutant monster things uh, just coming together. Yeah, because. Um, yeah, I was kind of telling myself with that aspect of it, I was like, well, okay, like what, what haven't I seen and what has been done? And I was like, oh, like kind of like the thing where it's like these things are kind of like taking forms of other animals and people. And I was like, well, what if I fuse all these creatures together and just make Earth a wasteland and no one goes there? And the only reason that they're going there is to retrieve this gem, which is pretty much the MacGuffin. So that's kind of like you got your little Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of, uh, influence kind of sprinkled upon that where it's like action adventure and action adventure on a forbidden planet. But then you also have the emotional core. Cause I'm like, okay, like this, I remember one of my friends told me like, so this is like, I don't know, Raiders of the Lost Ark meets total recall meets marriage story. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, I just was kind of like, I nodded. I was like, yeah, I guess you can kind of say that because you have all these different elements that are just, thrown into a blender and I just kind of try to funnel it out the way I want to funnel it out with my voice. And that's kind of where that one came from. But it also uh, looks at the uh, subject of world building. Cause for something like this, you had to spend a lot mm -hmm. of time figuring out like, how is this little universe, these two characters are going to like come together and what, it, how, I'm gonna, how are you going to write out the challenges and obstacles that they face? So like, how long did it take you to fully map out just the world of the uh, protagonist? Oh, and that probably took me like the entire process probably took me about to write the whole thing was probably about six months or so somewhere around there because I was basically telling myself like, okay, like what if I put them on like a planet or whatever? And I was like, well, I'll put them on, I'll put them on this on their own planet. Then Earth is like the forbidden planet. And then I was like, and I told myself like, okay, what are these characters like? What do they have? What do they don't have? And how are they connected? So in the story, basically 
these two mercenaries are are competing against each other for this gem, but they're also competing against each other to be the the best space mercenary in the galaxy. And their egos are always clashing with each other because they're always trying to see who gets the best bounty and who can kind of push forward and, and claim that right to be the best bounty hunter in the entire galaxy. And I was like, okay, like if I take this portion and then just kind of build on it, well, who, who's, who's the, who's Kurt in this? And then who's ginger in this? Cause Kurt and ginger are the two protagonists. I was like, okay, ginger was a former space pirate turned space mercenary. And she's been through hell and back. Kurt was her mechanic to begin with that would fix up her space car that she would kind of go to other planets to get her bounties. And what I ended up saying was like, okay, he feels that she abandoned him. He goes off and becomes his own space mercenary and they become competitive. They, they become, they basically be, compete against each other. And with him, it's like, oh, he's more, He's more of like built by the machine of, of, uh, oh God, the, uh, like the glitz and glamour portion of it, like the, like the notoriety of it. So he's going to have everything. She's going to have nothing because she's still grimy and, you know, nose to the grindstone, kind of like hard edged mercenary. And with him, he's more of like the, he's more of a celebrity. So he's going to have all this notoriety. She's going to just have like this, she's going to have almost nothing. And then I was like, okay, fine. Like that's how they contrast each other. And that's one of the things with them is that I was like, okay, like they need to contrast each other in every single element. Like they need to contrast each other with their lifestyle. They need to contrast each other in their personality. And then they also need to contrast even in their color. Like, (laughs) like, um, Kurt is in, he wears red and white. Ginger wears black and blue. It's like literally everything contrasts. Like, but they're so different, yet they have this, this old, uh, they have this history together of being in a relationship together because at the end of the day, opposites do attract sometimes. And that's why I told myself, like, okay, like the more they're different, the more they're going to be alike when they're together. And that's kind of what I ended up doing throughout the entire story is that like whenever they're apart, they're extremely different, but then right when they, right when they're together, they're, they're more vulnerable and they open up more. And that's when they unite, they basically unite throughout the entire story whenever they're together. But when they're apart, they're, you know, bad mouthing each other and everything. And then right when they get back together, that's when they're allowed to become vulnerable because when, when they're separate, they're invulnerable in their own eyes, but then when they get back together, they're vulnerable because that's another contrast there too. Yeah. Honestly, so I love the amount of thought you put into all of this because those kind of relationships (laughs) are so complicated, but they're so beautiful when put out in the story like that because you really want them to try to work things out. There's still the question of will they, won't they? So... Oh, yeah, yeah. Then that's the whole linchpin to it, where it's like you're constantly like asking yourself throughout that story, is like, oh, are they gonna get back together? And they're like, no, nope, they double cross each other. And they're like, oh, they, they're 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 kindling, rekindling stuff. They double cross each other again because, and that's also like some good, the bad, and the ugly elements that I kind of threw into that too, with like 
Blondie to go and Angel Eyes, where it's like you think like, oh, they're they're forming unholy alliances to double cross each other for the treasure. So, because at the end of the day, they're still they're still space pirates, and yeah, that that one I look back on it now, and I'm like, oh, okay, that was probably one of the. It was tough to write, but actually, now I look back, like, yeah, it was kind of fun to write too, because you know you had all these like action adventure type of tropes too, but then the core of, the, of it was a lot more human than you know. And space adventure mutant fights and everything. Yeah, it's really some of the uh, artists' scripts to write can also be some of the most fun because you know it's a challenge. You're meeting that challenge right there. Yeah, so, so. <laughs> let me ask you a random question. On average, how many rewrites do you think you do uh, per script? On average, about anywhere from like four to board and maybe eight because I'll go back and I'll be like <clears throat> I'll go back and I'll be like well this would be a better this would be a better intro scene because then this would lock in with this part so I'll go back and I'll write a new intro scene to kind of get you up to speed faster with the story because that's one of the things with like with the uh, intro scenes you have to get the audience and the reader invested right away because you also ha- and you also have to have them questioning what's going on, and then right after that, you have to start answering those questions. Because the second if you don't answer their questions in the right after the intro scene, you lose them because then they're like they don't know what's going on; they're confused. Mm-hmm. So with that, I'm like, okay, like I'll go back and I'll be like, well, this could clear up some confusion, and then this could also I'll link this up to this scene, and it'll make a lot more sense. And then it becomes a lot more personal because when when you put when foreshadowing goes a long way because if you put something in the script at the beginning or in the middle and then you bring it back up at the end it has a lot more impact because you've stayed you've basically been living with those characters for as many pages as many minutes for this long and if you bring back something that's like you know like linus in his blanket or something like from charlie brown like i'll use that as an example it's like you know linus always loves his blanket yada 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 and then imagine like we fast forward to like Linus on his deathbed and he like in the middle lost his blanket. And then on his deathbed, Charlie Brown brings him his death, his, uh, brings him his, his blanket back. And like, by that point, like, you're like, Oh, like, like it's a lot more, it has a lot more emotional impact because like we already understand he loves that blanket. So that's kind of like, that's like a little bit of an example there. I could just kind of, you know, off the top of my head thinking about that with Linus in his blanket and then on his deathbed he gets it back or something. So you kind of have to build emotional, uh, em- emotional marquee with items or with dialogue or with characters of what's, what is important to them and what will either make or break their world. Cause that's kind of like what I do with my characters is that I, uh, it's going to sound kind of nutty or whatever, or crazy or whatever, but like, I, I kind of punish my characters. I, I, I put them through the ringer, like I punish them, I make them not want to live anymore, and then at, until like towards like the very end, they finally see the light at the end of the tunnel, and it's like, okay, maybe there is some hope, maybe there is something to look forward to, because that's kind of, sometimes I feel like that's how life can be cruel sometimes, but then life can also have those beautiful moments, and you have to kind of, you have to live for those beautiful moments, but you also have to live through all those bad moments too. 
Uh, I love that. Thank you. And so, you know, you're right because there are just when you when you punish a um, character and you put them through a lot, it really just makes your readers appreciate that character even more because how they like get through it, they manage to put break through all that and become something better. Then that was a good story, a story well told because you made like you made an impact, and especially the, the readers because now they can kind of see themselves in that um, that character. So yeah, I love what you're what you're doing there. Now, Rudy, I want to talk. To, I want to ask you about about the about the film industry because we've all seen it. We all um, are reading the news. For one, these these strikes are taking um, center stage, and there's been so much controversy and so much um, happening between them and the um, film industry, from streaming services to AI. And as someone who's participated in the strikes himself, uh, how do you, like, how have you, let me say, um, read and analyzed and just seen how everything has um, come to this and what was your reaction to it? Oh, man. When it comes to, you know, the strikes, like the WGA and, and SAG, it, it's, it's sad because this was necessary because like even just like you and myself like as as writers and as artists the thing is we're we're not fighting over things that we want we're fighting over things that we need and there's a huge difference with that because you know when you're going living paycheck to paycheck and living off of you know like a peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or tuna sandwiches or like what I, what I used to call like loser's lunch where it's like, it's just, you know, ham on hand instead of, cause you know, you couldn't afford the, the, the bread. So it was like, yeah, when you're living like that and you're literally a starving artist, you're fighting for things that you need to survive. You're not, I'm not like, I'm pretty sure none of us would be fighting for like, Oh, you know, like I, I just really want that, that mansion with a garage full of Lamborghinis, gold plated Lamborghinis. I was like, that's some like, that's something where it's like that. That's not something that you need. That's something that you want. Like no, but when you're fighting for what you what you need, it's your basic survival, just to live and to take care of yourself and along with your family. And that's why, like, I feel like these strikes were very, very necessary because that's what they're fighting for. And then, oh man, when it comes to AI, I it's it, it, Terminator starting to look more and more like a documentary to me now, which is, which is kind of, kind of eerie, you know, like they live and Terminator is starting to become more like documentaries now, because the thing with that is that like with AI, it's like, you're basically terminating the human experience. You're terminating the human expression. And that's what, we've been around for is to express ourselves artistically express ourselves verbally. And that's what theater film and all these artistic endeavors was about to begin with. That's why now it's like, Oh no, like I can just, I can tell a computer to just write this screenplay for me. No, I can tell this computer to like make this painting for me. It's like, yeah, but you're kind of missing out on what the experiences of, that person were to make this, what the experiences were for this person to paint this, what the experience was for this person to write this. And that's one of the things that I'm, I'm very much against it because I, you know, like it, it, 
there's a difference between software and AI because like, yeah, like if you need to use Adobe to edit something or Avid to edit something, like, yeah, it's just a tool, but you're still, a person is still utilizing that tool. Just like a person still utilizing a paintbrush or, or like a musician still utilizing a guitar or a drum set. When you take the person out of that now, and now you just feed it into a computer and the computer spits it out for you, there's nothing there. There's no human emotion behind it. There's no human interaction with it. And it's just, to me, it's just very, very sad because it's like we shouldn't be going that way and like at all. Like it should not even be a question like, oh, why are we going this way? It's like, no, like we should not be going that way because the thing is it's you're, it's dehumanizing. It's taking away everything that we are as people and as artists, it's taking away all of that. And one of the things that I remember my mentor back in Vegas used to tell me, she was like, yeah, life's in the details. Like every little thing that your characters say, everything that they wear, everything that they do, every like look that they give that their life is in all those details. And it's true. It's it's extremely true because the thing is like, like from what you wear to what you say, it's, it's a part of who you are. And now that it's like, Oh, like it's like, Oh, like I'm going to like, I just need to write this, this screenplay to satisfy whoever I need to satisfy. I don't really, I don't really feel like sitting at it and sitting at that, that computer screen and feeling what I need to feel to say this. I'm just going to, have a computer regurgitated because I'm not, I'm not going to take the time to feel it. So it's very dehumanizing in, in my eyes. And I'm glad that SAG and the WGA are finally standing up to all this because that is the foundation of where we come from, who we are and what we do as artists. Mm-hmm. So, because there's been just this big battle um, between them and, the um the companies the executives and the executives I've seen this we we both seen the um the sources we both seen their um responses to this and essentially they want to like um drag this on but how do you see this um strike um you know persevering or uh, just continuing to happen pretty much just continuing to fight this um in, in the future uh, like when it comes to the studios and the CEOs and everything. It's just that I may be going out on a limb here or whatever, but I still feel that they're very, I feel like they've either, they were detached to begin with from this whole situation or they slowly, but surely became detached from it because it like, cause it, it just gets to that point where how much like how much money do you need to garner to finally feel satisfied in life and how much can you see other people struggling and other people that work for you struggling and still be satisfied and be able to sleep at night like i i would not be able to i guess it's just my my conscience would not let me sleep at night knowing that yeah, all these people that I collaborate with that are pretty much my extended family and people that I, I respect their work and everything. Like, oh, like, yeah, but my my house is worth more. My, my, my acres are worth more. Everything that I do is worth more than what they do. 
And I, that's one of the things that does upset me a lot because it gets to that point where it's like, well, these are still people at the end of the day that need to work and they're working as hard as you, if not more than hard, harder than you. And when I see people just kind of like swath away their, their necessities and their needs and their, their complaints about the industry and the system, it's very alarming. It's very, very alarming. And it's just, it, it's, it's sad as well too, because I like with me, like I, I try to, I give as much respect I can to everybody that I collaborate with from the gaffer to the best boy to the PAs, everything. Because the thing is at the end of the day, they're giving me their time. And that's why even when someone says like, yeah, really, I'll help you out, shoot this, you know, this short, or I'll help you out with this, like whatever they're going to help me out with, I always thank them right after they say yes. And even then they would tell me like, why are you thanking me? I haven't done anything. And I was like, I tell them like, I'm thanking you because the thing, the thing is, is that it's so much easier to say no than it is to say yes. And that's one of the things that I always appreciate is that I'm like, yeah, like they're giving me their time. And it's like, yeah. And I try to compensate for their time by either paying them what I can or, or basically doing what I want, like paying them what they would want or what it is to just make up for their time. And that's why sometimes like, yeah, like I'll, I'll give them an extra or I'll give them more or anything like that. Because the thing is, I know what that, I know what that feels like on the other end too, where it's like, I'll be making, I'll be helping somebody and either they won't pay me or they're flat out just won't even thank me. And it's, it's, it's very disrespectful. It's very, it's, it's damning. It's kind of, it's just very degrading. It's very disheartening. Yeah, somewhere on there, yeah, that too, and disheartening because then it's like you get to the point where it's like, well, man, is everybody like this? And then when you meet someone that's not like that, it's like, oh, like I try to be not that, where it's like, oh, like be disheartened this person and not respect their time or their effort for what they're doing for you. And that's one of the things that with the studios and the CEOs, it's like, yeah, like the thing is, is that when you're basically just cutting costs, And you're like to them, cost cutting means I don't have to pay this person. And it gets to the point where you're spending more money to not get a better product. You're kind of fighting yourself as well, too. Like when you're paying thousands of, you know, see like computer graphics artists just to build, you know, to build a 3D table to put in the background instead of just hiring someone like a production designer or an art director, someone to just build that table, but it's because you don't want to pay them more or give them insurance or pay any of that stuff or give them any benefits. When it starts to become that, that's when there's a huge problem. And that's why there are these strikes going on because it gets to that point where it's like, no, I'd rather pay someone less and get less instead of just paying someone more and get more. So it, and that's, and why just to increase their own revenue. So it's just, it's very, very, it's pretty sad and it's very uh, disheartening to know that this is what it's come to. And I understand 150% why the WGA and why SAG have been doing this because they're fighting over what they need, not what they want. Yeah, I see. 
So when you're working with everybody, you're one of your um, one of your missions, one of your principles is to just treat everyone working for you, no matter how low their position is, just treat everybody as a person, show everyone respect, and let them know that their time is appreciated. Oh, yeah. yeah, you want to just build mutual yeah. respect, mutual loyalty there, because that's how you know that a good work culture is going to bring out the best productivity in everybody. And also, because it's just, yeah, exactly. everybody, everybody just wants, to, everybody enjoys, you know, that respect, that appreciation of their efforts. Yeah, I, I can definitely, yeah, can definitely get behind that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I mean, I, I mean, I've been everything from a PA to costume designs to, you know, art director. I've, I've done because throughout college and even throughout some of my professional career as well, like I've been different. I've been in different departments all the time. And the thing is, I always tell myself, like, yeah, you know, I've been the guy that's just been cleaning up the set. I've been the guy tearing down the set. I've been the, the screenwriter. I've been all these different. I've worn all these different hats. But to me, you know, that, like those different hats were never a crown for me where it's like, oh, well, I'm the director of this. So, like, you know, I like I'm, I'm the king around here. It's like, no, it's just a different hat. And I like because there's some people that will rule things with, a, with an iron fist type of thing and then they'll forget where they came from and with me it's like no like i i try not to forget where i came from because i'm i'm not going to be blinded by where i want to go but i'm not going to forget where i came from too and some some of these people they get blinded really really fast and really really quick to all that so now i ask you the next uh question is regarding uh movies uh, whether it's sent through the theaters mm-hmm. or through streaming, we've seen this summer has been honestly kind of a fascinating one because movies that have like IPs are made by major uh, companies. Like we've seen Indiana Jones mm-hmm. with the flash and then freaking Pixar, you know, not getting that usual box office like success that they've gotten before. It's shocking that these, um, all these IPs and all these uh, new releases from big um, studios are just not doing so great. And then you see Sound of Freedom, you know, a little indie movie that's made so much money. This has been a commercial success. I, and now with these strikes going on, we're definitely going to see a major slowdown in uh, major releases. So it's got me. Does it get you thinking about like how indie films might eventually like? Um, Take, possibly take over in popularity or you think uh, seals will still have like that, that leverage. Like, I'm kind of glad that I know, I think Mark Ruffalo came out and said like, Oh, like that, that actors and writers and they should start focusing more on indie projects. And I'm, I'm glad he said that because, because the thing is with IPs, they pretty much kind of do that just for the marquee value. Because if you go and watch, you know, Terminator, another Terminator movie, oh, well, people know what Terminator is. We don't have to spend this much money advertising it. So it's like people will go watch that no matter whatever we put out. The thing is, is that sometimes the CEOs and the studios and all that, but <laughs> they kind of fail to know the history because Terminator started out as an indie project, you know? <laughs> Back in 84 with James Cameron, like he was like, it was just a small independent movie. But what happened? Like, oh, it, it erupted into a franchise because 
like James Cameron and and Schwarzenegger, like they all took care in what they were working on and how they were showcasing it. And they they kind of tend to forget that like these these IPs started as small things and then they kind of ballooned into these these kind of bloated franchises and they kind of forget what was the appeal to begin with. It's like, oh, like Terminator, like what was the appeal? The time traveling robots and Schwarzenegger and, and all these things, but it had that core story because <laughs> I always blow people's minds where I always tell them like, yeah, you know, like, like <laughs> core stories are sometimes like, you know, when nothing's ever original. Remember I told somebody, it's like, yeah, you know, the Terminator is just the nativity story with time traveling robots. And I remember I, I told it to like a group of students where I was their student assistant. They were looking at me like, my God, it is. And I was like, yeah, because the thing is like, it's a simple story, but it's told through like these, like these great aesthetics, but there's also like this human element to it, like through, through the aesthetics and the effects that Stan Winston did. And I told him, I was like, yeah, like the, the core stories are small. Like they're, they're very grounded. And that's one of the things that if you ground them in reality, it's a lot more appealing to people. And that's one of the things where I was like, yeah, you know, like the first time got blown up by a little pipe bomb and crushed by like a, like, uh, like, uh, this, uh, this crusher at a junkyard. That's it. Nowadays it's like, oh no, the Terminator's flying through the air and like, like going, doing somersaults in the air and falling, you know, 500 stories to the ground. And like, it, it's stuff like that where it's like, dude, it becomes more and more, preposterous and it's like if you keep that human element to the things i feel like more people will be intrigued to come and watch watch movies better and and if you keep your stories contained and not have it go all over the place you know people will be more intrigued to watch it that's why like i that's why i remember i told them like yeah the activity story it's it's terminator but with robots and it's just it's a human story and you just kind of latch onto that and it becomes simple, but then it's, it's told through these great aesthetics. And that's one of the things I always tell myself, like with these new franchises and everything and the franchises that are coming out, it's like, it's becoming, you can kind of tell people are starting to tune them, tune them out because they all start to look the same on top of that. Like Indiana Jones, it's like, yeah, like the, like the first three movies were great. The fourth one, people are, that's the, that's the polarizing one. But then this new one, it's kind of, You've already been, you've already been reacting not very positively towards it. And it gets to that point where, when does this, when do you stop? And when do you start making new things? Because oddly enough, I was telling my cousin this, I was telling my cousin, I was like, you know, what's funny. Like, imagine if like right now, like Indiana Jones, it's been about 30 some years in 89 since the last, like, since Crusade came out, and then it was even like 2007 when King, like the Crystal Skull came out. I was like, okay, it's been like a 15 year period, and then they started making all these movies. I was like, okay, imagine like if back in the 80s, if they were still making like Zorro movies in the 80s, 50 years later. Like, imagine they were making like 10, like, imagine they made like a franchise of like a shared universe of like Zorro, Green Hornet, and, uh, like Roy Rogers or something like these old fifties shows. Imagine if they were, if they were to make 10 of those movies in the eighties, like and make a franchise, like it'd be the same thing as to what they're doing now. And it's like, Oh, like these old kind of IPs would just blow the dust off them and then present them and try to make some money off of them. As like, it, that would have been the, the equivalent back in the eighties if they were still making Zora movies and green Hornet movies and just kind of putting them all together. 
And it's like, if you think about it like that, it's like, oh, yeah. Like, it'd be like they dug up, like, they bring back the old actors and everything. And it's like, okay, like, and then just kind of put them in front of the screen and just kind of leave, leave them there to, to do their bidding and everything. It's like, yeah, it'd be the same thing if they were to have done that in the 80s. But it would have been IPs from the 30s and the 40s. So it, it 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 trips me out sometimes too. I'm like, oh yeah, that that's like wow, that would be kind of strange if they would have done that in the eighties. Yeah. It was kind of trippy. But honestly, yeah. Azoro Yeah, yeah, with Azoro Green Hornet crossover sounds so dumb yeah. that I kinda of would love to see. <laughs> Uh, like Kato, uh, where are you? Alfonso, <laughs> come here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, like, because I look at it like that, I'm like, yeah, like, his, it, like the industry kind of like starts to cannibalize itself too, because it's like, okay, like we we can't think up of new things, but then even when we bring up new things, they'll they'll still flop. And it's like, well, the thing is, is that if you're gonna like these new things that you're doing, if you're doing them in the same manner. That you're doing these the older things new like where it's like it's a wall of cg and like it's just all this effects computer effects and there's nothing human there to kind of grasp you anymore if you're doing that with this with the new ips you're going to get the same results that's why like i kind of i'm a i'm a huge champion for practical effects because like i love tom savini and greg nicotero and knb and all that because i grew up on 80s and 90s kind of slasher movies and horror movies and you know like everything was everything hurt or was scarier when you actually saw like an axe go through someone's back or something or you saw like 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 when they had squids instead of like cg blood coming out it's like oh because right then and there it takes you out of it and the thing is with me is like makeup effects artists back then they were like they were film magicians because it's like man how did they that looked real like how did how did Kevin Bacon get an arrow through the neck and then he's still alive and footloose? Like that's what I, I remember. I, that's one of the things I asked my, my uncle when I was a kid, I was like, okay, that footloose guy got killed in the Jason movie, but how's he still alive? If he, if he got killed, he's like, well, Rudy, like, no, that's, it's like a makeup effect. It's like fake blood and it's not real. It's like, yeah, but it looked real. See, and then like, I mean, that's kind of the magic that's kind of missing nowadays. That's why I really wish they would kind of, go back to practical effects in every sense of it, but it goes back to the whole, man, it's easier to just kind of do this in post type of feel. Mm. So much going on, honestly. So much going on. It's absurd. So, um, yeah. as we wrap up this, um, as we wrap up this interview, I want to, um, I want to ask, I want to take it back to you, Rudy. So, mm -hmm. What are the three most, um, besides, you know, structure and everything, what are the three most important rules you have for um, those upcoming uh, writers out there? Oh, man. Uh, for the upcoming writers, uh, write what you feel. Life is in the details. And uh, know what, like, always ask yourself, what am I trying to say and how am I trying to say it? Mm. Those are the three things I could kind of tell up and coming writers is just keep all those things in mind and it'll be a lot easier. That's 
Awesome. And now I just have one last question for you, Rudy. When as you um, continue to be a writer and as the future, however uncertain it is, what are you most, um, what are you most confident in um, as you, as a writer, just working your way to the future, however uncertain it might be? Oh God. (laughs) The funny thing is is that I'm confident that I'm going to continue living. That's the thing. It's because my writing comes from my life experiences and that's the more, the more life I experience. And I guess like sometimes the more, you know, for good, for better, worse, anything in between, I'm still going to be experiencing these things and I'm going to have to write about them. And I'm going to have to purge all of this because that's just the way I function as an artist is that I purge all this through my writing. I purge all this through my painting or any type of expression. So that's one of the things that I know that it's the more I live, the more I'm going to probably be able to write. And the other thing I always tell myself too, is that because I think my, my friend asked me, uh, she was like, Oh, well, which one, like, which one do you think is your best script? Or, and I told her, like, I, I was like, I honestly hope I never write it. <laughs> I hope I never write my best script because the second I write my best script, that's when I know like, Oh, it's downhill from that one. <laughs> So that's why I tell myself, like, yeah, you know, just keep keep having experiences and understand those experiences and express them through your art, whichever way you're going to deal with them, and then know where you came from and understand your influences. And that's kind of like what I kind of – that's basically what I tell myself all the time. It's like, yeah, you know, like no matter how how, how tough life can get or how good life can get, soak in those experiences and then utilize them for your stories and funnel them out through your voice. All right, then. I love that answer. And now, (laughs) that is it for episode 39 of the upcoming. I want to give another big thank you to my guest, Rudy. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insight and your experiences with us. No problem, no problem. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And so, ladies and gentlemen, that is it. Like I said, that's it for episode 39. I'm sure to continue to follow us on Instagram at the underscore upcoming podcast. And be sure to find our episodes. You can also go into our website, uh, www.upcomingwithjohn.com. And, yeah, just be sure to check out more of these amazing uh, episodes because we only got more and more awesome guests like Rudy coming on and just sharing their experiences and their wisdom with us. And, yeah, just we just, let's just keep going here, folks. So, yeah, sure to tune next week for another awesome episode of the upcoming. And with that being said, good night. Thank you for tuning in to the upcoming. If you like this, be sure to follow us on Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at the underscore upcoming podcast. The best yet to come. Take care, everybody.